Good morning. Thank you, Vicki, for reading the word for us this morning. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, I'm so glad you're here, like we mentioned. Uh, I'd love to say hi to you after the service, so please uh, come up and, and let me know who you are, and I'd love to get to know you just a little bit. Um, this morning, we will be in John 5, um, as Vicki mentioned, and so you can go ahead and keep your Bibles open there if you would like, but we'll have the words on the screen throughout the morning as well. There are some things in life that are hard to believe, and there are some things that are harder to believe than others. If I were to tell you in mid-November that Lincoln Riley was about to leave OU for USC, <laughs> none of you would have believed me. And yet, a couple weeks later, you get on Twitter, sure enough, he's gone. The same could be said about the pandemic that began in 2020, right? Early 2020. If I were to tell you all of the things that were about to transpire over the next 18 to 24 months, you would look at me like a crazy person, right? And we're still experiencing some of those things. And yet, we've lived through them, and time and evidence have proved them to be true. But there are some things that even with evidence and time remain difficult or impossible to believe for some. I have a good friend who may or may not be in the room this morning, I'm not sure if he's in here, uh, that adamantly denies that we ever landed on the moon. Now, I don't fault him for that, he's still my friend, and if I'm being honest, I don't actually care a whole lot, like, whether we did or not, you know, um, but he's pretty confident that it never happened, and he's going to deny three key components around this belief. One is, is claims from a higher authority. Two is physical evidence. And three is eyewitness testimonies. So he'd probably say that he does not trust the motives of the government in regards to the moon landing event. Not sweeping across the board, but in regards to this, he would say, I just don't trust them. He would say there's a high probability that it was staged, right? That there was, it was set up, there was pictures taken and a bunch of people were in on it. And so that would call into question both physical evidence and eyewitness testimony. Now, maybe some of you guys are also some conspiracy theorists in here and you, you agree with him. I'm a little more gullible, I guess. And so I just kind of take the astronauts at their word. Um, but <laughs> I'm, not, I'm really not trying to make him look bad. Here, here, here's, here's the point. This is the type of unbelief that we are dealing with in our text this morning in John chapter five. The religious leaders are seeking to kill Jesus based off of some things that have just went down. And it's all because they refuse to believe that he is who he says he is. They've been told about or seen for themselves. Uh, they've heard from a higher authority. They've seen uh, physical evidence and they've heard from eyewitness testimony. Now, like my friend, they call into question first the authority that is making the claims. And because of that, they reject both physical evidence and eyewitness testimony. So I know we have a lot of guests in the room. So many of you have not been with us the last several weeks, and that's okay. I want to go back just a little bit and remind us where we are in John. Uh, first, the entire purpose of the book of John is found in chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the point of the whole book. That's it. That you would believe that Jesus is the son of God and that you'd have life in his name. Now, if we zoom into chapter five, I don't want us to miss the reality that uh, we, we will be preaching three total sermons on John chapter five, 
but they happened over four weeks. We took a break for our big 10-year party and we had baptisms. So over four weeks, we're hearing these sermons, but it happened immediately uh, in, in succession in real time. So there was immediately um, the, the healing at the pool and then Jesus goes right into his discourse. So I want us to, to be aware of that. So I wanna just do a brief recap of the whole chapter. So in verse one, we're told that Jesus goes to Jerusalem uh, because there was a feast. And on the Sabbath, he heals that man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And because it was on the Sabbath, the religious leaders became angry with him. So he says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. And then in verse 18, he says, this, John tells us, was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then as we heard last week, Jesus engages the religious leaders, even though they refuse to believe him. He explains to them that he, he, uh, he's doing nothing on his own accord. He's walking in step with his father. God, he claims, Jesus is claiming, has given him authority to execute judgment. We saw all this last week. And then an hour would soon come when those who have died will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. No wonder they accused him of blasphemy. These are massive claims that Jesus makes about himself. And that leads some to argue that the things Jesus said and did on that day, that Sabbath day in John 5, are what ultimately cost him his life. I think I've got these quotes on the screen for you as well. William Barclay in his commentary on John says this, it is an act of the most extraordinary and unique courage. He must have known that to speak like this was to court death. It is his claim to be king. And he knew well that the man who listened to words like this had two alternatives. The listener must accept Jesus as the son of God, or he must hate him as a blasphemer and seek to destroy him. There is hardly any passage where Jesus appeals for men's love and defies men's hatred as he does here. And then G. Campbell Morgan in his John commentary says this, on the human level, what Jesus did that day and what he said that day cost him his life. They never forgave him. Now these statements help put into perspective what has just happened at the Bethesda pool that Sabbath Day. By doing the things he's done and saying the things he's saying, Jesus is putting himself in clear opposition to the religious elite. They are power-hungry men using their knowledge of the scriptures to glorify one another rather than glorifying God. And because of this, because Jesus is the antithesis of these things, it will cost him his life. Now, what a sobering thought as we consider this discourse, but it paints the picture. It sets the stage for where we are this morning. So brief overview again, verses one through 18, you have the healing. He heals the man at the pool. Verses 19 through 30, he makes these huge claims about himself and how he's working in step with his father. And then in verses 31 through 47, we see that he backs up those claims with witnesses to himself. And so that's where we'll be the rest of the morning. So to help us understand this morning's text, I want to place ourselves in the audience of a courtroom because that is what Jesus is doing. The Jews are upset with him for what he's said and done. And so Jesus recognizes this and still engages them in regards to what's taken place. So he begins with his opening statement. I'm not a lawyer, but I've seen enough lawyer shows that there's an opening statement, right? Right, lawyers? Yeah, I'm getting a nod, yes. This is his opening statement, verse 31. 
If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So not super strong here. He doesn't come on strong yet. But he's acknowledging that if I come and say these things about myself and nobody backs it up, that you should not believe me. He's not saying what I'm saying to you is not true. He's saying it should be validated by some other people around me. And so that's what he's going to do. He's going to give four examples of things or people that bear witness. We're going to hear that over and over. They bear witness to Jesus. So he calls his first witness to the stand. Am I saying that right, lawyers? Yeah? I've seen enough shows, guys. John the Baptist. He calls John the Baptist. Verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness. There it is. John has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is for man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So what do we know about the baptizers so far just from the book of John? Let's go back to John 1, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So he came, John came, not to point to himself, though he did have a following, but that wasn't his goal. He came to point to Jesus. He came to say, I'm not the guy, but I know the guy, right? Later in chapter 1, verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. So we're just in chapter 1, and people are getting upset, We need to give an answer. Somebody's sending them to John to find out what's going on here. Why is this guy that's eating honey and locusts and looks like a scrub, like, why are they coming to him? What do you say about yourself? So he responds. I am the, he quotes Isaiah 40. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So we find out who's upset. The Pharisees sent these people. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And he answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And then he says clearly in verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And then he does it again the next day. John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And his disciples said, all right, we're going to go follow him now instead. So they leave John. And they go follow him. I just wonder, like, how many times did John do this when he interacted with Jesus? Like, it was every time he saw him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. We only have these two examples, right? But, but, but that was John's role, right? Not to point to himself, but to point others to Jesus and say, this is the Lamb of God. Now, Jesus, in our courtroom illustration, that's, that's a solid start. That's a solid first witness, He then calls his second witness to the stand, his own works. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than John. You've heard from John, but the testimony I have is even greater. 
For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing in front of you, they bear witness, there it is again, about me that the Father has sent me. So what have we seen so far just in John? In chapter two, you remember the the wedding feast. Uh, They ran out of wine. And so Jesus' mom came to him and said, they're, they're out. And so he, he takes the water and he turns it into wine. That was his first recorded sign. In chapter four, whether or not you wanna call it a sign or a miracle, he meets the woman of Samaria at the well and her life is changed forever as a result of engaging Jesus. And so what does she do? We read in verse 39 of chapter four, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Then he returned to Cana in Galilee where he performed the miracle of the water to wine and he meets the man whose son is at the point of death and he heals him at his word. And then in chapter five, we see the man who he's healed who's been an invalid for 38 years. These works and many more to come testify to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Witness number two. And he keeps going. He calls his third witness to the stand, God the Father. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness, there it is again, about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Commentators are going to also mostly agree that verse 32 is about the Father. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, This one was probably the hardest for them to believe, and for obvious reasons, okay? So Jesus says, you've never heard from God, you've never seen his form, and though they were devoted students of the Old Testament, Jesus tells them that God's word is not abiding in them. This had to be so confusing, because they could recite so many scriptures over and over, and and Jesus saying, his word does not abide in them. And you. And, and this argument also is somewhat circular, right? So the Father is bearing witness about the Son. The Son is glorifying the Father, and they can't understand because they haven't heard his voice and they haven't seen his form, even though the Son of God is standing right in front of them. The fourth and final witness that Jesus calls to the stand is a big one because he's going to undoubtedly remove himself as a defendant. Have you got, have lawyers, have you ever seen this? He takes himself off as a defendant and then he puts them on trial. The fourth witness we see are the scriptures, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Jump to 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. He wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So the very foundation for the Jews' tradition is the final witness that he calls to the stand. And he clarifies for them, I don't have to accuse you. I'm not going to accuse you. The scriptures are doing that for me. Moses accuses you. He wrote about me. So when he, when he says Moses, he's meaning the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
in Deuteronomy. And I can't help but think of Luke 24, um, that when right after the resurrection, the two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. And so uh, the crucifixion has just happened. The resurrection has literally just occurred. And the tomb is empty. And they're walking and they're talking about all these things. And so as they're talking about these things, Jesus just like appears. I mean, he just says like, and Jesus started walking with them. So Jesus is walking with these two, two people and they're talking about what's just happened. And it says in verse 16 of Luke 24 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus asked them, hey, what, what are you guys talking about? Like what, what, what's going on here? And their response in verse 18, are you the only visitor in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened? Well, of course he did. It happened to him, right? But like, I don't know if this is kind of sick of him, but he like, he's like, wait, what do you mean? Like, he, he keeps going, right? Even though he knew. So he's like, well, well what things? And so they're like, all right, well, I, I guess we need to tell this guy, right? He doesn't know what's going on, but they're talking to the son of God. So they begin to share with him what happened with the crucifixion, how the tomb is now empty. In verse 21, they say, but we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. We hoped it was him. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. So they're so confused. They like kind of trusted in Jesus. We, we wanted him to be the guy, and, but now the tomb's empty? What, what, what is happening? To which Jesus replies, you morons. Well, that's my, that's my translation. He says, oh, foolish ones. You're so foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And this next line is why it's relevant for our text this morning. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of the Old Testament, according to Jesus, is brought to complete understanding in him. And this is the same conversation he's having with the Pharisees on that Sabbath day in John 5. Moses accuses them, why? For if they believed Moses, they would believe him. But they don't. And so they don't believe him. And in so doing, he puts them on trial. Now, what a stunning reversal in our courtroom, right? that he just changes everything. He removes himself, he puts them on trial, and he shows them th that what they're standing on is not actually getting them God. They studied the scriptures and didn't get God. Why? Verse 38, his word did not abide in them. So that's where we're at. So what does that have to do with us? Like what, what does that matter? Why is Jesus bringing up these witnesses, especially if they won't believe? Why? I want to call our attention to verse 24 of chapter 5. So in chapter 5, verse 24 is right in the middle of the entire chapter, smack in the middle. So it is the hinge, I believe, on understanding chapter 5. And Jesus says this, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. So for those who refuse to believe Jesus, both the words he's speaking and the actions that he's performed, there is eternal death. But for those who hear the voice of Jesus and believe in the Father who sent him, there is eternal life. I am a very simple man. I love math. Very simple. 
Two plus two is always four, always. It is never five. I assure you, it is never five. This is basic math. Whoever hears the words of Jesus and believes the Father that sent him gets eternal life. It's important for us to understand that. Now, author and pastor Kent Hughes points out three ways in which the Pharisees got it wrong in our text this morning. Despite all of these witnesses to Jesus, and I think we need to understand these three things. The first thing he mentions is they used the wrong approach. The Pharisees used the wrong approach. Again, we see in verse 39, they searched the scriptures because they thought they got eternal life in the scriptures themselves. Now, this made me think of a vacation that our family went on last summer. We took a trip to Colorado. Uh, I love to escape the heat of Oklahoma. If you're new to Oklahoma, I'm so sorry for what's about to happen to you in this summer. Um, and some of y'all are from Texas and you're like, you don't know anything, right? <laughs> Houston, whoa. Um, so we love to get out of the heat and go to Colorado. So we went, we were some extended family. And a couple of those days, we went to the ski resort that in the winter, you, you snow ski and you, you know, do all the fun stuff in the snow. In the summer, it's cooler. And so they've got these, uh, you know, roller coasters, you ride down the hill and all these fun activities for kids. It's, it's a ton of fun. And so the one thing that we could do as an entire family, it was a scenic chairlift. It sits like four to six adults wide. So me and like all our kids, like we're, and, my, and my wife, obviously, we're on this scenic chairlift, and so we're going up. And when you go up, it's, it's just okay, right? Like you're looking directly into the mountain, you see some tall trees, and it's just, it's just okay. But you get to the top of the mountain, right? Like you're at the very peak as it starts to turn, and it turns you around, and you see down, and it's like, wow, wow. You're seeing snow-covered mountains for miles and miles, things that you could not see from the base where you just were. All the people that you're, you used to be around, like just before you left, they look like ants, like you can hardly see them. Like it's just, it's just remarkable, like for how far you can see. I love the, the weather's just so great. Like I got a coat on and I'm freezing, it's the best, I love it. Now imagine with me, for a moment, if I turn to my wife and I just say, wow, like, I, right as we turn, like, we get up to the chairlift, we, we turn, and I just say, wow. She's like, yeah, wow. Yeah, I'm like, wow. This is majestic. And I, and, I, and I go on, and I say, can you believe the plastic that has constructed this chairlift? Like, look at this. <laughs> wow. Like, the way it, like, just curves to allow us to sit so comfortably. Can you see? Look at those screws. Are those rust-resistant? Whoa. And then I look up and see the wire, like, what a wire. Wow. That is just something else. She would look at me like a crazy person, right? Right? What is the point of the chairlift? Not so that we would marvel in the chairlift itself, right? Who cares about the plastic or the wood or the paint color or the wires or the rust-resistant screws? They need to be rust-resistant, though, let's be honest. The entire point of the chairlift is to usher us into something so much greater, so much more majestic, so much more amazing that we could not have done on our own. There's no way I could have taken my wife and our millions of kids, it feels like at times, up that hill, that mountain. There's no way we never would have made it. But in a few moments, 
that chairlift ushers us into something so glorious, so majestic, so worship-inducing, and that is the point of the scriptures. This is how the Pharisees missed it because they thought it was the scriptures themselves that gave them eternal life and they missed God altogether. This is their point. The scriptures show us something more majestic and beautiful and amazing that we could not see apart from them. The scriptures take us there. So what about you? When you read the scriptures, what is your goal? If you aim for knowing Jesus, you will grow in both character and truth. If you aim for knowledge of the Bible alone, you're in danger of missing Jesus altogether and getting legalism and a hard heart instead. I had a friend in seminary um, that we graduated together and he preached a sermon one time and he said that Judas Iscariot was in the best seminary in all the world for three years and he graduated without knowing Jesus. John 14, six, Jesus tells us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say the scriptures are the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through them. The scriptures are helpful, but it's Jesus that provides us eternal life. So they had, the Pharisees had the wrong approach. They also had wrong motives. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What else would prevent them from acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah than pride? They couldn't believe that Jesus was the Christ in large part because they didn't want to. They didn't want to. They liked their life as it was. They liked receiving glory from one another. Coming to Christ meant that they would get less glory, and that's the point, right? They traded the glory for Christ and an eternity spent with God for approval of other people. Now, what a cheap and awful transaction, like taking gold or diamonds to a pawn shop for their trash can, for whatever's in their trash. But let's be honest with ourselves, we do this, don't we? We like to be liked. We like to seek the approval of others. We want others to say nice things about us. Just like the Pharisees, we see the miracles of Jesus. We read the claims he makes. We hear of those eyewitness accounts and how the disciples all themselves follow Jesus to their own death and we still pursue the lesser glories of our fellow friends. The model for us, of course, is Jesus in Philippians 2, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you miss Jesus because your motives are wrong? Because your heart is pursuing lesser glories? Confess, repent, and turn back to Jesus today. So the Pharisees had the wrong approach. They had the wrong motives. And this obviously led to wrong belief, or we could just say unbelief. Verse 37, we've read this over and over. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, 
and you don't have his word abiding in you. You don't believe the one he sent, verse 42, but I know that you don't have the love of God within you. Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. This is what ultimately ought to cause us to tremble. The religious leaders of the day, literally the elite of the elite, they were face to face with the author and creator of the world and they didn't believe him. They memorized the words of God. They told others to obey and to follow God. They looked externally like you would think followers of God would look like. And they missed God. Matthew 7 tells us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? For the Pharisees, it was, didn't we memorize scriptures? Didn't we tell everyone else to follow you? Didn't we look like what we thought we ought to look like? And he's going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Not you average people, not you good, kind, nice people. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. One commentator I read this week said of the Pharisees, they relied on tradition and could not accept the testimony of the inbreaking of God into their lives. Wow. I'm going to say that again. They relied on tradition and could not accept the testimony of the inbreaking of God into their lives. Now, this has to be true for some of us this morning. There's enough people in here. That's true of some of us this morning. Jesus desires to break into your life today, this morning, and you can't accept his testimony because of something. Now, it may not be what it was for the Pharisees. It might be status or the pursuit of wealth or having the perfect family or the perfect job or the perfect spouse. Whatever it is, I assure you, it's not worth it. I'm inviting you this morning, and I believe God is inviting you this morning to put whatever it is that's keeping you from trusting in, believing in, submitting entirely to Jesus to the side. Crucify those things and come to Jesus. Now, I know Easter is next week, and this is kind of going to be a spoiler alert here. Jesus is alive, okay? I'm sorry if you thought otherwise, but we're going to go ahead and go there today. We've already sung some songs about it, so you just missed it if you didn't think that was true. Jesus came as God in the flesh. He took on our sin. He went to the cross and he died for you and me. He was risen on the third day, proving that sin and death could no longer hold him. And his victory over sin and death is ours through faith and belief in him. We receive that when we come to Jesus. And that is the ultimate invitation this morning. Now, going back to where we were in the beginning. Listen, I, I really don't care how much, you know, you believe the Lincoln-Riley rumors before they came out. Like, I don't really care about that. Um, I don't care about, what else did I mention? The, the, the pandemic, like, if you couldn't believe those things on the front end, you know, I, that means very little to me. I don't care if you thought we laid on the moon or not. I, we did, right? You know? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't really care. I do, however, care deeply that you listen to the words of Jesus and you believe him. 
that you believe the words he spoke, you believe in the things he did, and you trust him with your life, that you hear the, the claim from the highest authority, that you receive the physical evidence, and you believe eyewitness testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I care about those things, and I'm urging you to place your life, your trust, your faith, belief in him today. Now, I wanna not forget verse 24. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's all it takes. Hear his word, believe the Father, receive Jesus. Now on this Palm Sunday, as we enter Holy Week, what a needed reminder for us from John 5. Are we looking to the scriptures that we might see Jesus exalted? Do we come in humility, pursuing the glory of God rather than the glory of man? And do we truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Does this belief move us to action? Has the, our belief in Jesus changed our lives? Have we died to ourselves and are we living for him? And perhaps the most important question we can all answer this morning or maybe ever with your life is what Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? And may we all respond like Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can sit under your word. We thank you that it matters to us today in 2022 that your word has relevance to us, that you speak to us through your word and through your spirit meeting us in this place. And I pray that, especially for those this morning, that you may be doing something special in that, that the spirit is, is convicting of sin or calling them to yourself. I pray that you would give them the boldness and the courage to respond. If there's any in the room that have yet to believe in you, I pray that right now in this moment you would cause them to believe. Drop the scales from their eyes and help them receive the grace and mercy offered to us in Jesus. And for those of us in the room who have been followers of Jesus for years and years and years, I pray that you remind us this morning that our belief, like we never move past belief in Jesus. There's nothing we graduate Two, from that, we stay in belief and faith in Jesus. And so would you grow our faith? Would you grow our belief in you? And when there are pockets of unbelief in us and we, it's hard for us to believe, it's hard for us to follow, it's hard for us to trust, would you help us to believe in you? We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.